Chapter 16, Part 2 of The Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 1, by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter 16, Part 2. Dr. and Mrs. Gamaliel Bailey of the National Era had established in Washington a brilliant salon. At their soirees there were always distinguished guests from abroad, and Grace Greenwood was on these occasions quite equal to any of those French dames whose salons have become historic. The Bailey entertainments were of more importance in furthering anti-slavery sentiment in Washington than has been appreciated. The anti-slavery senators were rarely met there, with the exception of Hale, but their ladies often came. A good many representatives attended. Two North Carolinians, Goodloe and Helper, virtually exiled, found welcome and sympathy there. Nothing in Washington was more brilliant than the Bailey soiree. The bright and pretty Yankee ladies got up theatricals, charades, tableaus, and the White House receptions were dull in comparison. The serious force and learning characteristic of the national era could hardly prepare one to find in Dr. Bailey the elegant and polished gentleman that he was. He was the last man that one might imagine facing the mob that destroyed his printing press in Cincinnati. I do not wonder that the mob gathered for similar violence in Washington had quailed before his benign countenance and calm good-natured address to them. Mrs. Bailey, a tall, graceful, and intellectual woman, possessed all the nerve necessary to pass through those ordeals, while at the same time her apparent role was that of introducing young ladies into Washington society and shining as the centre of a refined social circle. I did not write for the National Era, but, when I could spare time from my sermons, wrote for the National Intelligencer, which reached my own people, as the era did not. Payment was never thought of, as I contributed only what I wished to have published, barring, of course, theology and slavery. I wrote several reviews, one of these being of Longfellow's Hiawatha, fall of 1855, which brought me a grateful note from the poet. I possess no copy of my review, but my memory is that I read up the aboriginal legends. At any rate, when, soon after, Longfellow was accused of appropriating the stories along with the meter of Kalewala, the Finnish epic, I was able to defend him. Longfellow, in a note of December 3, 1855, said, quote, I wrote you a few days ago to thank you for your generous article on Hiawatha, and now I must write again to thank you still more for coming so swiftly to my rescue in this onslaught of T.C.P., whose chief motive for publishing his astounding discovery seems to be to inform the world that he has read Kalewala. It is really too abject and pitiful, and one does not want to waste time upon it. Still, I am greatly obliged to you for saying what you did, and as you may not have the Indian books at hand, I enclose the refutation of the charges touching Hiawatha's birth and departure. I can do the same if necessary with each and every legend, though of course not with the detail of the working up. Longfellow also sent his copy of Kalewala, TCP I never identified. Footnote. 
In one of his letters, Longfellow sent me an extract from one he had from Emerson, which says, quote, I find this Indian poem very wholesome, sweet and wholesome as maize, very proper and pertinent for us to read, and showing a kind of manly sense of duty in the poet to write. The dangers of the Indians are that they are really savage, have poor small sterile heads, no thoughts, and you must deal very roundly with them, and find them in brains. And I blamed your tenderness now and then, as I read, for accepting a legend or a song when they have too little to give. End quote. End footnote. It was a satisfaction to be entirely relieved of all those relics of extreme unction which make so important a part of Methodist ministry. Of course I visited my friends when they were ill, but it was not as a minister. One morning a middle-aged lady called on me and said that her husband had been taken ill as they were passing through Washington, and the doctor thought he might die. They were unacquainted in the city. She was herself an Episcopalian, but her husband was a free thinker, and would certainly not receive an Orthodox clergyman. She earnestly desired that he should be visited by some minister of religion, and as he was more friendly to Unitarians than to others, she asked if I could call. I said that I would see him, if she was sure that my visit would be well received by the sufferer, and not excite his resentment. She promised to converse with him, and I would learn at the door whether I would be welcome. Their lodging was near my church, and when I called, the lady took me into the invalid's room. In the bed I saw a handsome man of about sixty, with a look of keen intelligence. I perceived that he was on the defensive. His wife, he said, desired him to see me, and for her sake he agreed, but was afraid it was not fair to me, as he had no belief whatever in Christianity. I told him there was no need for such fear, as it made no difference to me whether he was a Christian or not. He then smiled, and related that several preachers had tried to convert him, and he had said to the last one, The man who tells me that the Bible is as great a book as Shakespeare is a fool. When he saw that I was not shocked by this, he became very affable. I think that one of his reasons for receiving me was that he feared an orthodox funeral in case of death. His case improved, however, and he was able to reach his distant home. I have regretted in later years my loss of memoranda concerning the name and address of that family. I think the half-humorous remark of that man about Shakespeare had a serious effect upon me. I was still backward in my appreciation of Shakespeare. I had seen several of the tragedies on the stage, but never performed by great actors, and though I read the plays, they did not appear to be related to me. I have an impression that Emerson's chapter on Shakespeare in Representative Men had misdirected me with regard to the poet himself. Quote, it must even go into the world's history that the best poet led an obscure and profane life, using his genius for the public amusement. End quote. I remember a criticism I had made on some writings of Gotha that seemed to me cynically worldly, and Emerson saying, quote, For the present you desire quality rather than quantity. End quote. It was indeed so. My head was so crowded with the problems of existence that no room was left for any poet unacquainted with the forms in which those problems appealed to me. Meantime, however, I was playing too, quote, 
plucking light hopes and joys from every stem, end quote, without dreaming that every flower in the pretty garden contained a sweet secret. But that gentleman in Washington, who with what he supposed his dying words placed Shakespeare above the Bible, made me study the poet more carefully. I find it impossible, however, at seventy, to estimate what I derived from Shakespeare in those early years. I cannot help projecting into my first serious acquaintance with those works the cumulative experience related to them. Shakespeare represents to me supremely the test of all genius, namely, that its work anticipates the stages of life. His work can never be precisely re-read. Every time I make the attempt, I find that in the interval new experiences, however unconscious, have touched my eyes and reveal unsuspected thoughts and depths in the page. An important event in 1855 was the appearance of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Emerson wrote of the book at his house and suggested that I should call on the new poet. I read the poem with joy. Democracy had at length its epic. It was prophetic of the good time coming when the vulgar herd should be transformed into noblemen. The portrait in the book was that of a working man, and if one laborer could so flower, genius was potential in all. That Walt was posing as one of a class to which he did not belong was not realized by me even after his own intimation of it, as related in the subjoined letter to Emerson sent me by his son. Washington, September 17, 1855. My dear Mr. Emerson, I immediately procured the leaves of grass after hearing you speak of it. I read it on board the steamer Metropolis on my way to New York the evening after seeing you, and resolved to see its author if I could while I was in the city. As you seemed much interested in him and his work, I have taken the earliest moment which I could command since my return to give you some account of my visit. I found by the directory that one Walter Whitman lived fearfully far, out of Brooklyn nearly, on Ryerton Street a short way from Myrtle Avenue. The way to reach the house is to go down to Fulton Street Ferry, after crossing take the Fulton and Myrtle Avenue car, and get out at Ryerton Street. It is one of a row of small wooden houses with porches, which all seem occupied by mechanics. I didn't find him there, however. His mother directed me to Rome's printing office, corner Fulton and Cranberry Streets, which is much nearer, and where he often is. I found him revising some proof, a man you would not have remarked in a thousand, blue-striped shirt opening from a red throat, and sitting on a chair without a back, which, being the only one, he offered me, and sat down on a round of the printer's desk himself. His manner was blunt enough also, without being disagreeably so. I told him that I had spent the evening before with you, and that what you had said of him and the perusal of his book had resulted in my call. He seemed very eager to hear from you and about you, and what you thought of his book. He had once seen you and heard you in the lecture-room, and was anxious to know all he could of your life, yet not with any vulgar curiosity but entire frankness. I told him of the occasions in which Mr. Bartol and others had attempted to read it in company and failed, at which he seemed much amused. The likeness in the book is fair. His beard and hair are grayer than is usual with a man of thirty-six. 
his face and eye are interesting, and his head rather narrow behind the eyes, but a thick brow looks as if it might have absorbed much. He walked with me and crossed the ferry. He seemed hail fellow with every man he met, all apparently in the laboring class. He says he is one of that class by choice, that he is personally dear to some thousands of such in New York, who, quote, love him but cannot make head or tail of his book, end quote. He rides on the stage with the driver, stops to talk with the old man or woman selling fruit at the street corner, and his dress, etc., is consistent with that. I am quite sure, after talking with him, that there is much in all this of what you might call playing providence a little with the baser sort, so much to the distress of the Reverend Vaughan's nerves. I could see that he had some books, if only a bottle-stick like Elton Locke to read them by, though he told me I thought too much of books. But I came off delighted with him. His eye can kindle strangely, and his words are ruddy with health. He is clearly his book, and I went off impressed with the sense of a new city on my map, that is, Brooklyn, just as if it had suddenly risen through the boiling sea. After reading The Leaves of Grass, Emerson wrote to the author an enthusiastic letter, greeting him, quote, at the beginning of a great career, end quote. Whitman at once printed an edition prefaced with Emerson's letter. Emerson said that if he had known his letter would be published, he might have qualified his praise. There are parts of the book, he said, where I hold my nose as I read. One must not be too squeamish when a chemist brings him to a mass of filth and says, See, the great laws are at work here also. But it is a fine art if he can deodorize his illustration. However, I do not fear that any man who has eyes in his head will fail to see the genius in these poems. Those are terrible eyes to walk along Broadway." It is all there, as if in an auctioneer's catalogue. Emerson did not complain seriously of the publication of his letter. It was not marked private, and appeared so carefully written that Walt considered it, as he said to me, quote, a serious thing that might be fairly printed. End quote. He did not, however, print any more of the edition containing it, and that second edition is rare. The incident made no difference in Emerson's friendliness towards the author, whom he welcomed cordially in Concord. Walt Whitman did not wonder that Emerson and his Boston circle should sniff at his plain-spoken inclusion in his poetry, to use his words, quote, of every process, every concrete object, every human or other existence, not only considered from the point of view of all, but of each, end quote. He told me with a smile that he had heard of his poems being offered for sale by a vendor of obscene books. My own feeling, after twice reading Leaves of Grass, was that his pantheistic inspiration had come from Emerson, and his style as well as his broadness mainly from the Bible. He had been reared among Quakers, had heard Elias Hicks preach, and the Quaker way of spiritualizing everything in the Bible explained to me the refrains of psalms and Solomonic songs in Leaves of Grass. My sister had been with me on this summer excursion, and I left her at the Metropolitan Hotel with a lady friend while I went to visit Walt. But I had read these young ladies select passages from the poem, and they had curiosity to see him. 
so I invited him to early dinner at our hotel next day, and he came in Bay's coat and checkered shirt, in fact just like the portrait in his book. The ladies were pleased with him, his manners were good, and his talk entertaining. Walt Whitman told me that I was the first who had invited him because of his book. On my second visit, during the summer of 1857, he was not at home, but I found him at the top of a hill nearby, lying on his back and gazing on the sky. It was Sunday morning, and he promptly agreed to a ramble. We first went to his house, where I talked a few moments with his mother, a plain pleasant old lady not so grey as her son, and whose dark eyes had an apprehensive look. It was a small frame house. He took me to his little room with its cot and poor furniture, the only decoration being two engravings, one of Selenius and the other of Bacchus. What he brought me up there to see was the barren solitude stretching from beneath his window towards the sea. There were no books in the room, and he told me he had very few, but had the use of good libraries. He possessed, however, a complete Shakespeare and a translation of Homer. He had received a common school education, and had been brought up in the Democratic Party. He used to attend the gatherings of leading men in Tammany Hall in the days when its chief was Payne's friend, John Fellows. But he left the party when the Fugitive Slave Law was enacted, and then wrote his first poem, Blood Money, never published. We passed the day loafing on Staten Island, where we found groves and solitary beaches now built over. We had a good long bath in the sea, and I perceived that the reddish-tanned face and neck of the poet crowned a body of lily-like whiteness and a shapely form. Walt Whitman said to me as we parted, quote, I have not met anyone so charged with my ideas as you. The ideas had attracted me less than the style, because of its marvellous resemblance not only to biblical, but to ancient Persian poetry, which I was reading in the Desatir, and other books which I found he had never heard of. It seemed like the colours of dawn reappearing in the sunset. Here, too, was a revelation of human realms of which my knowledge had been mainly academic. Even while among the humble Methodists, the pious people I knew were apart from the world, and since then I had moved among scholars or persons of marked individuality. Except the Negroes, I had known nothing of the working masses. But Whitman, as I have known these many years, knew as little of the working class practically as I did. He had gone out among them in the disguise of their own dress, and was perfectly honest in his supposition that he had entered into their inmost nature. The Quaker training tends to such illusion. It was so in the case of Thomas Paine, who wrote Transcendental Politics and labelled it Common Sense. With our eagerness to believe in the masses, our masters, we credited them with the idealism which Walt Whitman had imaginatively projected into them, and said, Unto democracy also a child is born, this is America's answer to Carlyle. Somebody, probably the author himself, sent the book to Carlyle, who once said to me, quote, The main burden of Leaves of Grass seems to be, I am a big man because I live in such a big country, but I know of great men who lived in small corners of the world. End quote. The working men did not read Whitman's book, and fewer of them than he supposed cared about him personally. 
my enthusiasm for leaves of grass the only work of whitman i ever cared about was a sign and symptom that the weight of the world had begun to roll on me in methodism my burden had been metaphysical a bundle of dogmas the world at large was not then mine for its woes and wrongs i was not at all responsible they were far from me and no one ever taught me that the earth was to be healed except at the millennium the only evils were particular ones a was a drunkard b a thief c a murderer d had a cancer and so on when i escaped from the dogmatic burden and took the pleasant rationalistic christ on my shoulder he was light as the babe saint christopher undertook to carry across the river but the new christ became jesus was human and all humanity came with him the world woe the temporal evil and wrong i was committed to deal with actual visible present hells instead of an invisible one in a possible future such was now my contract and to bear the increasing load there was no divine vicar jesus was no sacrifice but an exemplar of self-sacrifice the great aim of methodism was happiness conversion was signalled by the shout of joy by hymns ecstasy while the devil groaned but this new faith summoned the soul to unending sacrifices severe duties the heavy cross never to be laid down how small a part of my new religion did i learn from those entertaining studies at divinity hall in fact i was not equal to all this i was too young half of me was a boy and wanted to play i needed a master but in my own profession who was there in washington to look up to the worst thing perhaps in taking up a religion which under a supernatural solemnity deals with affairs of the world is that the minister must have an opinion on every vast question it is expected of him to have his inlet to omniscience sufficiently free to pass judgment on events big enough to receive the attention of deity thus at washington i had to say something about the crimean war i very earnestly detested all war but as in every conflict one side seems less to blame than the other i took the side of england warmly i was misled by several english writers in whose judgment i had confidence and too easily because i was in revolt against the traditional anglophobia of new england in washington the highest society in rank was accessible to me but i was not impressionable in that direction methodism illustrated by my parents kneeling with the poor in the basement of their house had implanted in me an ideal of greatness that consisted in standing by an humble thing among those men in political life i could find no hero i esteemed some respected many but none filled me with enthusiasm i was at times present at the receptions of grand officials but would not have exchanged for any senatorial or ambassadorial party an evening with certain families that i loved my heart was not lonely because i had no hero to worship but the sweet friends to whom i looked up in many things looked up to me for guidance in the great issues of the time and what guidance could i give in my twenty-fourth year of all that swarm of officials congressmen officers not one face now emerges with the clearness and radiance of a certain youth unknown to fame who tried to share my burden of the world woe and under it perished this youth gerald fitzgerald was about eighteen when i settled in washington 
I believe the family were Catholics, but he was the lover of a very attractive and spiritual young lady of my church, and this had brought him into contact with new ideas. He became my devoted friend, he took to heart my every sermon, and a determination grew in him to enter the ministry. I did not influence him in the least personally, but even had some misgivings, presentiments perhaps of my own approaching troubles. He was very handsome, not to say beautiful. He was intellectually brilliant without conceit. He had a charming voice, fine humor, every quality that might make a successful minister. So it was arranged that he should study at the Divinity School, Cambridge. Then came on the war, that damnable double-tongued war that lured the best youth to their graves with promises now broken. Just on the threshold of a career already radiant, Gerald uplifted the ensign of liberation of both the Negro and the nation from slavery, and went forth as a foot-soldier. It would not have been difficult, with his influential friends, to secure for him a chaplaincy or some other position in the army, but he sought it not. None of us ever saw Gerald again. Two soldiers reported that they found him dying of a wound on the field, and bore him to the shade of a tree. The place of his burial is unknown. Before me is a strangely sweet poem of several pages, privately circulated, but by an unknown writer, which is headed, Gerald Fitzgerald, killed in battle on the Rappahannock, May 1863. So vague were the rumors about his end, that I long cherished a hope that Gerald might be in some kindly cabin recovering life, and might yet surprise the circle in Washington that so deeply mourned his loss. But in these last years I have felt it some compensation that the noble youth died with the full assurance that the fair ideal America, and peace never to be broken, would arise out of the blood he had shed, his own and blood of adversaries just as brave. Knowing well Gerald's sensitive heart, I feel sure that even had he returned from the work of slaughter, he could never have smiled in the old way. Had he lived to this day, he would find himself amid phantoms asking, Was it well then to shed our blood in order that the negro might be freely lynched, and north and south united to lynch also Spaniard, Filipino, and Chinaman? Rest in your peaceful unknown grave beside the Rappahannock, O oh my friend. For you no tears, no heartbreaks, no harrowing reflection that your chivalry was in vain, and the war mere manslaughter. These are for me, who found you a happy youth clinging to me with boyish affection, and from my pulpit helped to lay on you the burden of the world. End of chapter 16, part 2